Today, Londoners have woken up to a very different city. Over half of America is on lockdown. As many of us must stay at home as possible. Hi, I'm Peter Tufano, the Dean of Said Business School at the University of Oxford. Welcome to this first episode of Leadership in Extraordinary Times. This isn't a time for business as usual. This is a time for business unusual. We need to think about the world in which we find ourselves, but also about the world that we want to build when we emerge from this global health and economic and humanitarian crisis. We're going to need to collaborate and act in new ways. We're going to need to be mindful, not only of the present, but also of the future. This calls for leadership that can deal with the realities not only of disrupted supply chains and cash flow constraints, but also the longer-term goals of creating a better economy and a better society. It calls for leadership, a new kind of leadership in extraordinary times. In this series, we'll be sharing insights from our research here at Oxford Said and hearing from people who are on the front lines, leaders who are not only thinking about the impact of the coronavirus pandemic, but dealing with it. Consider them live case studies. From rapid innovation and lessons from crisis management to personal and professional well-being to building resilience in public health, we want this series to help leaders respond to an unprecedented period of turmoil. So who better to kick us off than the chair of the board here at Said Business School, Paul Pullman. Paul is the founder of Imagine. He's the vice chair of the UN Global Compact and was the iconic CEO of Unilever for a decade. In these last weeks, he's also been writing about the role of business in this crisis. You're about to hear a conversation Paul and I recorded from our respective places of shelter during the lockdown. We talk about what leaders are doing during this time of the pandemic and ask, is it enough? How do businesses deal with the immediate impacts of COVID-19 while not losing sight of longer-term goals, such as our climate emergency, and what might be the fallout for society at large? But I begin by asking Paul where we are in this crisis. What's his assessment of the situation that we find ourselves in? Well, the Secretary General called it the biggest crisis uh, since World War II. And I think he's right. Uh, what we're dealing here with is not only a health crisis, uh, an economic crisis that is increasingly apparent, but I would also uh, call it a humanitarian crisis. So what we see clearly is uh, this requires a decisive action uh, that is uh, something that we're lacking still at this moment as we're tackling the crisis. We have many countries in the world where the government still pay lip service and without being political, I would refer to Mexico or Brazil, which is a time bomb in the making. Uh, many African countries where we have now over 5,000 cases and going up quickly. So the developing markets are ill-prepared. And uh, you can see from the UK example or now the US example, as we saw in Italy as well, that if the responses are slow, which unfortunately they were, uh, the consequences are very difficult to manage. The medical system's overwhelmed, economies crashing. So we're at that point of decisive action. We need to be also innovative. There's no question about it that we, in dealing with the crisis today, we need to find innovative solutions, not least to a vaccine for it, but also innovative solutions, how businesses are going to work together to deal with it. And then last but not least, I think this crisis has also shown the need that we have to work together. This world, if we liked it or not, was growing apart. Uh, this is a global crisis that affects us all and can only be solved with the intensity of a global solution. Thanks, Paul. That's a great start. 
We're going to spend most of our time thinking about business, but you mentioned, and obviously we can't separate business and government and civil society and everything. So maybe just a kind of a place to start with, with governments. What are governments doing? Is it the right sort of things? Is it enough? I know you sit on the ICC and a bunch of other bodies that are kind of talking to people at the highest levels. So what's your assessment of, of the government sector right now? Yeah, most of the time now is spent. Uh, I thought it would be uh, less work and and, uh, and easier to be at home and, and managing the new technologies. But in fact, at, at the end of the day, I think we've all discovered that work seems to have increased for some reason. Okay. And the main uh, activity that we focus on is really uh, working with the um, G20, I'm the chair of the B20, to be sure that they come with ambitious agreements. They had a meeting last week but a lot needs to be done still working with the G7 countries uh, and then via the ICC, the International Chamber of Commerce, which has 45 million members working very actively with the WHO, putting systems in place, funding uh, capabilities with the private sector. Uh, the Tedros, the, um, the head of the WHO, called it a whole of society, uh, whole of government problem, which means that no, no government alone can solve this and we need to be all together. And then we're working with the WTO and other organizations to ensure that we uh, keep the free flow of products, etc. Most governments are now focused on three things. The first one is obviously the immediate coordination of the healthcare crisis, where the big watch out is that many countries are actually putting export barriers in place for urgent medical supply or PPE, which is the protective equipment. Uh, 54 countries now and the numbers go up. So we need to rally around and, and keep the countries to higher moral standards, may I say, and also have the developed world take the developing world or the, the global south into account. The second thing after bringing the healthcare crisis under control that you've also seen is, is tackling the devastating social and economic consequences. We've clearly discovered that when everything goes well, not many questions are asked and and sort of our economic system is accepted. But now we're seeing how many are in the informal economies, how many are not protected. In the US, one in four don't have sick leave. A, a vast majority of Americans don't have access to healthcare. The gig economy has made many people dependent on finding their own work. And, and if they don't have work, they're exposed. So tackling the social and economic consequences. And we encourage governments first and foremost to support businesses to keep businesses open because that's a, the best and most effective way, obviously, to provide uh, security to people. But when and where that is not possible, we need to have security nets uh, that need to be put in place, both by the private sector, higher level of, of morality there as well, and by the governments. And the third area that we're starting to focus on is obviously to building for a better recovery. Uh, the governments in the world have collectively decided to put $5 trillion in to strengthen the global economy, slightly over $5 trillion. We've never seen that significantly more than during the financial crisis a little bit more than 10 years ago. And we need to be sure that the steps we now take to come out of this crisis actually creates a better future than where we came from. Europe and the US taking slightly different approaches as you might expect. Mm -hmm. In Europe, the central government has about 20% of the GDP and very much focused with that 2.3 trillion stimulus program on the private sector, tax relief, private sector, uh, financial relief, monetary and fiscal policies around that. In Europe, at the EU level, it's only 1% of the budget. We've just chosen a different system. So the EU is focusing 
on easing the uh, financial pressures, uh, helping the banks uh, in their lending capacities, the European Investment Bank, the European Emergency Funds. But most of the work in Europe is happening at the country level. And the Europeans, unlike the US, has probably tilted a little bit more their support towards the social networks uh, that they have created, which is obviously uh, fine. But um, what we are seeing is a lack of global cooperation, a return to nationalism and own interest versus working together on this global crisis, and frankly, a response that is good for a few weeks, but is not enough for a uh, more lasting solution. And that is where we continue to focus on. Great. Let's, let's talk about business for a little bit. Um, as part of our research projects, I had the great fortune of being with about 25 CEOs and owners two days ago. We asked them what their top priorities were. Survival and uh, their people uh, were the top two priorities of virtually everyone. Those who are in essential sectors like healthcare or food, they clearly saw their, their requirements. But what do you think that businesses should be doing right now, business leaders are doing right now and should doing right now, as they're facing these almost existential choices between perhaps corporate survival and other sorts of things? Well, I thought in my 10 years as head of Unilever, I had some challenges, but I must have timed my retirement well because the challenges that any business now has, uh, including uh, and especially the small and medium-sized enterprises is enormous. And it's going to redefine entire industries. Mm -hmm. uh, the way we lived before this crisis, unfortunately, I believe is not going to be the same as after this crisis. And, and many are obviously trying to think about that future as well as they deal with the immediate crisis. Even in the US, uh, it is estimated that 30% of the SMEs that were there before the crisis were sort of zombie SMEs. They had very precarious financial um, situations and were not really uh, solvent uh, organizations. So you'll see a, a big shakeout, but it's not surprising where the priorities are. I think the first priority always, always should go to your employees and keeping your employees safe and that cannot be stressed. And I'm glad that you mentioned that, Peter. The second priority is to ensure the business continuity. Uh, keep your workers paid where you can, uh, but also keep your supply chains uh, going. Uh, there is an enormous pressure that is building up right now on the cash flow of companies and the viability of their concerns. And that is probably where most of the CEOs spent 90% of their efforts. So that's the second part. The third one is to take care of the citizens and, and the communities in which you operate, I think that would really be important. We see uh, broadly businesses behaving, I would say heroically, new partnerships being formed that were unthinkable even two or three months ago, but there is also abuse. There is uh, price gouging that we still see in many cases. There is self-interest that is uh, taking a precedent for some of the country companies. There is a... Uh, lack of uh, responsibility taking towards people that are in their value chain. So we continuously work very hard in calling out the saints and the sinners, may I say. The fourth priority, I would say, for business has to be to help governments. As I said, it's a whole of government, whole of society issue, and business really needs to step up and play a role, um, also to ensure that they're protected themselves. But this is a bigger issue than any individually can do. The fifth one is to... Uh, for businesses to, to create longer-term visibility to their shareholders. The shareholders are confused. They've lost confidence in many of the governments in the world, and they really want more transparency from uh, the business community and actually at regional level from the regional governments, which seem to be more effective. 
but businesses need to spend time on explaining what it means for their business right now, what their exposure is, and what it means for the longer term. And that we have not done enough yet. And then finally, uh, as we put measures in place to deal with this crisis, Peter, it's important that we think about the future uh, and not uh, create problems that might be bigger than we have today. So addressing climate change, mm -hmm. uh, the Paris agreements, trying to put plans in place that are in line with the sustainable development goals would obviously be preferred. Right now, I have to say that's a mixed picture. Mm -hmm. It seems to be, um, let's stimulate growth at any expense. And that is just not uh, the best solution that we should be going for. Yeah. You talked about new kinds of collaboration that you said were unheard of just a few months ago or a few weeks ago. Give us a sense of, of what those collaborations are all about and how are they actually happening? What's, what's the impetus to bring them together? Yeah, I think what you now see is a um, different form of stakeholder partnership emerging at a faster speed than ever before. Uh, the first things that were happening were rallying around for the funds. Uh, this would be the COVID Solidarity Fund would be a good example of that, which we called at the UN level, um, where we need the emergency aid. And again, especially towards the emerging markets. We were actually surprised how little support we got from governments, may I say, uh, without being too critical, but how rapidly business actually contributed. There are businesses that have contributed funds, 50 million, 100 million. Then there are partnerships emerging for the first time, I think at scale, at the pharmaceutical level to find a solution. It started with companies like MasterCard working with the Gates Foundation, where we have the uh, COVID uh, healthcare coalition forming now, uh, many of the healthcare companies getting together, open uh, sourcing their IP, some of it protected even a few weeks ago. Uh, there are 400 clinicals in trial and, and many of the efforts are working there. We've seen a partnership of the tech companies. This is very much a data issue, an AI issue mm -hmm. that has to play an enormous role. We've seen it in the countries that manage it better, uh, Singapore, Taiwan, Hong Kong, to some extent, and the learnings from China how important it is that we go into lockdown, but also how we test and track everybody, especially when you go back into recovery. Mm -hmm. The tech companies, uh, Google taking a lead, but comp other companies like Salesforce and Microsoft heavily involved in that consortium. Mm -hmm. And then the World Economic Forum, credit to them under the leadership of Klaus. We have now about 400 companies that are participating in the uh, emergency task force that has been set up around the uh, economic forum, which, which um, you know, is treated like, like a war room, if you want to. We had a call yesterday on that. And coming out of that are interesting partnerships. It's amazing how companies all went together producing sanitizers or healthcare products. Mm -hmm. We've seen the fashion industry. That is not an industry that is used to working together. All of a sudden, we see alliances to make masks or surgical gowns. Mm -hmm. We see the uh, consumer goods industry working together, a very competitive industry, uh, retooling their factories for sanitary products or other things. Mm -hmm. uh, we see hotels going together, becoming hospitals. Um, so this is really an unseen effort that uh, makes you believe in humanity and makes you believe in a different form of uh, partnership than what we were used to, a much more collaborative partnership and probably at a higher moral level. So these are some of the partnerships that we're seeing emerging. And, and people are understanding that these are not only good for society, but they're also getting clear feedback uh, quite rapidly, may I say already, 
uh, how much that does to corporate image, how much that does to employee morale, how it positions companies already for the future versus the past, how it discovers new possibilities. I would expect that coming out of this, many companies will relook at their business plans and adjust their um, uh, the direction that their businesses are taking or even the products that they might be interested in. I should have mentioned, by the way, a partnership in the UK as well and, and other places in the US around the ventilators. It's just amazing how many companies are start stepping up that are in the car industries or the appliance industries or any other and all of a sudden are trying to solve this most burning issue to mm -hmm. keep us all breathing. We've right. discovered that that's important. Uh, so these are some of the examples of partnerships. Then you see, if I may, for two minutes, you see uh, the normal things. You see groups of companies providing financial protection to the value chain. You see groups of companies being leaders in protecting their employees. You are groups of companies being leaders in providing funds or providing products. Uh, but I have to point out also, I would say uh, 30, 40% of the industry simply hasn't caught on yet and, and doesn't get it. We see companies announcing price increases, which are totally unnecessary and, and create a bad impression. We see companies uh, unilaterally uh, stopping payments and putting the pressure on others when the services already were provided. Mm -hmm. uh, we see companies continuing to pay dividends or bonuses at a time that we all need to tighten our belts. The uh, business secretary in the UK, Alok Sharma, uh, just reprimanded the banks that we're going to pay out big bonuses. We see uh, interest rates on loans going up. We see loans being called in. Uh, Bill Ackman, uh, a person who's not my personal friend, earned $2.6 billion just a few days ago by betting against weakened financial positions of companies that were under pressure. And short selling has gone up significantly. You know, there are some things that, frankly, uh, Peter, we need to ask ourselves, have we learned the lessons from the previous financial crisis mm -hmm. and have some companies learned lessons of what their purpose is here in the world, something that you're very passionate about, mm -hmm. that the side business school is leaders in. So whilst I'm overall optimistic that I see about 60% plus of the companies behaving miraculously uh, and doing amazing things, uh, the others are also flushed out. And I'm glad that they're also being called out, the, the sports directs, the Weatherstones and and the financial institutions and some others, the, the Amazons, the Ubers, um, you know, we really have to change this and hopefully they'll take the lessons very quickly or they'll be out of business. This is a historic moment for businesses to step up and they must. The tectonic plates of the corporate world are shifting, rewiring how we think about the way businesses work. The old mantra that greed is good is dead. Instead, we're seeing the green shoots of new collaborations between firms on an unprecedented scale. But I want to ask Paul, will these partnerships last beyond the crisis? Or is this emergency bringing unlikely bedfellows together who will go back to business as usual when it's over? Well, uh, that's a good question. And someone was uh, asking me or making a point to me the other day that if you look at any of the crises that we've had or pandemics that we've had in the history of mankind, that is not the only one. But um, we always went back to normal. I actually disagreed with that, but I'm not a, a student of history and you probably have a better answer to that. But I think that this uh, crisis is of such magnitude and has shaken our economic system uh, so much that I think a lot of people are going to ask fundamentally different questions. First of all, it's affecting our behavior. 
And we've created, again, a sense of responsibility, a sense of community, a sense of morality that perhaps was missing or that was starting to be missed in where we came from. I hope that lots of these efforts around that, the communities that have sprung up, uh, the, the humanity that has come back as a priority, that that stays with us. And I tend to believe it will. Uh, we're also now seeing that society is calling out for that behavior. We see the Edelman survey coming in a few days ago, clearly uh, separating, but also rewarding. You know, Johnson & Johnson yesterday was uh, announcing uh, good for them that they would make uh, these medicines that they're developing that they think might be available in September, that they would make them available for free. Uh, it's not an announcement that normally the shareholders would, would like to hear, but the share price went up. Mm -hmm. uh, we see also the investor community stepping up around ESG. We see actually ENG inf investment holding up better yeah. than the non-ENG investment. The green bond market actually is doing very well. We also see some of the bigger fossil fuel companies being under more financial pressure now, despite uh, all the other things than the green energy sector. So I think this might in some areas have accelerated changes and, uh, and we have it totally in our own hands, I think, to decide what future we want coming out of this. Great. So you talked about that long sweep of history. I can't say I've studied all of it, but you know, again, looking at World War II and what persisted afterwards, um, I've studied business schools. And it turns out there were a number of innovations that created the modern business school that really were created in the middle of wartime. Some lasted, some didn't, or took another few decades to come back. So somewhat parochial question, but since a lot of the listeners here are parts of you know, a business school community, the Oxford side community. What's the role of a business school? Challenge us to do what we need to do in this crisis to, uh, to do a good job. You and I talked about this in January in Davos and I think the discussion we had is even more important now. Yeah, well, obviously what you have seen in this crisis is uh, trust is very low, but the healthcare community and, and credit to them, we all admire that now 10 times more than before. Mm -hmm. They're now the most trusted in society so are your families. Actually, the trust in business is going up. That's very encouraging. But what always has stayed high is the trust in the um, academic institutions. So a big role is to be played. Many of the universities, you have a community of 40,000 people that are uh, connected to the side business school alone. The university, obviously, a community that goes well beyond that. Uh, taking an initiative like this, bringing this community together, uh, sharing best practices, being uh, the voice of, of thinking or direction uh, when we need that confidence, when we need that uh, communication, when we need that uh, calmness to mm -hmm. deal with this situation is a very important role to play. The university is an incubator of innovation. Mm -hmm. uh, you are the leading school with site of innovative business models. Uh, the Colin Myers, the Bob Eccles, and many of the other staff you have, you're very blessed. And one of the reasons I was honored to be the chair of, of your school but it's also these people are on the foreground of what a different uh, economic model is needed. A, a model that is more sustainable, a model that is more equitable, mm -hmm. a model that is more inclusive, uh, a model that is more multi-generational. And I think the, the, the seeds are being sown for a fertile ground to drive to that. And the side business school will have a leading voice in that. And then there are the partnerships. We're starting to work with the side business school and others on the modeling on what do we need to do. There are many different scenarios on how do we come out of this crisis. It's not so obvious. You know, can we continue like this or how long and 
and how much damage would we do to our overall economic systems and, and what are some of these recovery paths uh, when we come out of these lockdowns and how do we need to uh, manage those. I would very much hope that the academic institutions are a part of that. And, and last but not least, a, a thing you've already referred to, uh, at the Side Business School, we've created enormous partnerships. We know how to work with the private sector, but we also know how to work with the governments. We have the creative incubators uh, that you've developed there. And uh, being this convener uh, of these partnerships is something that I think is very well given to these uh, academic institutions. Thank you, Paul. So there's a set of questions, Paul, about how this immediate agenda intersects with the longer term agenda, how climate might play into the longer term future that we're going to have, um, or how the SDGs fit into all that. You kind of hinted at this before. So how do we keep battling this set of, I was saying two, I mean, perhaps it's three, a humanitarian crisis, an economic crisis, a public health crisis, but yet not lose the North Star of some of these things that for the next generation or two or more will be critically important. How do we think about immediate term, medium term and long term? Yeah, what we have learned on the one side is that uh, as we deal with this enormous uh, humanitarian tragedy and the health crisis that we need to focus on and potentially a food crisis that is coming around the corner, which is very much on my radar screen right now, um, we should not forget that uh, we have the, the climate crisis or the overall uh, human development crisis as captured in the SDGs. I don't think it's the moment right now to uh, piggyback on the health crisis and and make the rallying cries for the climate crisis as, as people really want to see solutions to what we have to face right now. I understand that to a certain extent. But it is good to remind us that the, by not addressing the climate crisis and by not addressing the fundamental parts of the sustainable development goals, the education, the healthcare, our food security system, our planetary boundaries, we've actually created this crisis. This COVID crisis is a direct result of us playing around with the uh, planetary boundaries. It's a direct result of deforestation, uh, wild animals getting closer to uh, human life, uh, unsustainable food supply chains. Uh, in this case, uh, the wet markets with the bats and Mm -hmm. and then contamination of the animal kingdoms with the human uh, kingdom, if you want to. And uh, historically, we've been able to manage that and, and play that dominance. But I think we're getting a significant warning sign right now that mm -hmm. we cannot play with these planetary boundaries. Um, what we have to be mindful of is that, uh, and some of the signs we're seeing that start to worry us, that um, some governments are using these uh, this health crisis to significantly reduce some of the standards on, on the environment. Mm -hmm. uh, you see lobbying of car companies to reduce emission standards here in Europe and the US. You see Trump passing some legislation very quickly in some states in the US, um, now that the attention is somewhere else on uh, environmental standards. Uh, we've seen a little bit in China where people were happy that pollution was back because it meant that the economy was starting to grow again. So short term, I think we might see a little dip but we have to be very vigilant that the plans we put in place over the longer term actually help us implement the sustainable development agenda. And uh, the Secretary General has, uh, has uh, started to talk about the recovery plan. He called yesterday for peace everywhere. I think this is a great moment as we address this global crisis, uh, but he's also called for accelerating the implementation of the sustainable development goals. Despite 
the regrettable but understandable decision to postpone the COP26 in Glasgow. Uh, the decision was made yesterday and it will be early next year. Uh, it doesn't mean that we should slow down. In fact, I think we can collectively think about accelerating now some of the actions towards the Sustainable Development Goals. The sad part, Peter, is that the cost of this crisis, where we've put in now $5.2 trillion, but the cost, the human tragedies, are not able, not able to express in any monetary terms. Uh, a lot of that could have been avoided had we spent a little bit more and a little bit quicker on starting to implement these sustainable development agendas. Agreed. Um, one of the things that we all study at business schools and in business, and you know, you and I have talked about this, Paul, is metrics. So Azure, whether it's in G7 or G20 or ICC, what are the indicators that you're looking at to understand not just the, the pandemic, but the other aspects of this humanitarian, economic, and public health crisis. So what should be on our dashboards from society's perspective now? Uh, it depends where you're sitting, uh, Peter, obviously, what the indicators are. For us, uh, one of the most important indicators to see that we are able on the road to recovery and hopefully normality or a better world is mm -hmm. the peaking of the number of uh, cases. So uh, one of the most important indicators are, in fact, the health indicators mm -hmm. um, in terms of uh, bringing society back to normality. And the second indicator actually is the uh, credit availability. There's a tightness in credit uh, that is not healthy. And that actually is uh, undermining any of the other activities in, in fiscal and monetary uh, policies. Uh, so if we don't see that happening at the macro level. And then actually, as, as the organizations that I represent, we're looking at some other indicators, more around actually the uh, matching the, the words with the deeds. You know, we see more countries uh, putting export barriers in place. Uh, we're seeing a food system uh, becoming uh, gridlocked. Uh, and so we're more worried about that in the coming three to six months mm -hmm. uh, and holding uh, countries to a higher level of responsibility. And then we are tracking very closely what is happening in the emerging markets. Having said several times that this is a global crisis, uh, we need to be sure uh, that enough energy and funds and actions are taken to protect the most vulnerable of the vulnerable. And I may add one dimension to it, that if you look in Africa, for example, mm -hmm. uh, women are disproportionately in the uh, labor force for agriculture. Uh, women are disproportionately, obviously, uh, unpaid uh, home workers. Mm -hmm. And what we see again in this crisis, like in most of the sustainable development goals, it is the women uh, that suffer most. Interestingly, with the financial market now, uh, the main indicators, I think, have not anymore become the normal indicators. The, the financial market is actually fairly tolerant towards companies that announce no payment of dividends mm -hmm. or that actually announce a drop in their turnover. I think what is the financial market would now appreciate is companies that can show that they're actively involved in addressing this issue mm -hmm. and companies that can actually show that they take a holistic approach towards solving this. And that's what we see increasingly also being rewarded by a growing part of the financial market. So that's an indicator of the corporate health, if you want to. Now let's zoom out. I want to talk to Paul about the impact of the pandemic beyond the boardroom and look at some of the possible consequences on a macro level for society at large. How will COVID-19 change inequality around the world? A persistent problem. Will it get worse? Better? 
So I think this crisis again has shown more the uh, gaps that exist in society. Uh, when everything was sort of moving in the right direction, although I would have argued to that that uh, our economic system, even before the crisis, had too many people that were not participating or were falling behind. Income gaps were going up. The the bottom 3.8 billion people in the world actually uh, in 2018 saw that, saw that combined wealth go down by 11%. So we already knew we had a job cut out for ourselves. Now it's very clear that that has been exposed even more so and it's even more fragile. Uh, and it's even more fragile to some people's surprise, regrettably, in the developed world first and foremost. Uh, uh, the state of California has 60,000 homeless people. Besides the risk of having uh, uh, being able to, to contract uh, the COVID-19 virus, uh, that number is more likely going to double in the weeks as we sit here, and it's uh, happening. Uh, one in four lacks sick pay, 60% uh, lack medical leave for longer-term illnesses. We reckon there are 37 million people that might potentially be unemployed in the United States. Many of them obviously are, are living from daily wages uh, and are in what we then call this wonderful gig economy. So I think it has shown the underbelly of society, a little bit less in Europe perhaps right now because the uh, social networks are a little bit stronger. But this is a significant human tragedy that is only unfolding yet or starting to unfold under our eyes. The emerging markets have been less susceptible to that because obviously many more people already found themselves in that situation. But you take now Bangladesh, about $2.5 billion of garment orders were canceled last week. And all these people, you know, it's now by the hundred thousands are being sent home. Uh, you see them in India with the lockdown where uh, people had to walk home for hundreds of kilometers to go to their villages, but there is no income and no salary. So if we don't keep the food supply going, which is our immediate concern, uh, food, by the way, depends a lot of mm -hmm. foreign labor coming in, uh, mm -hmm. temporary labor. Uh, and these people are actually already at the bottom of many of these economic pyramids. So if we disrupt those processes to grow our food supply, then we exaggerate the issue that we're now creating. I think coming out of this, we hopefully have discovered that we are first and foremost citizens of planet Earth and need to work together. So better global cooperation, although that might not be very evident if we listen to some of the politicians, but I do hope that we can force ourselves to a level of higher global cooperation again. And that's very much what the International Chambers of Commerce is focused on. And hopefully have new social contracts coming out of this that provide better safety nets for the people that don't have it now. We see the enormous cost by not having it uh, provided. And uh, hopefully part of the recovery plans will take care of that. The difference between the developed and the developing markets, will that change much as a result of this crisis? I don't think so either. I, I think it is a little bit appalling, may I say, how slow uh, the developed market is willing to support uh, organizations like the IMF uh, to issue special drawing rights, mm -hmm. uh, that we are still not willing to cancel debt in the emerging markets. Even in Europe, you have, unfortunately, my country, the Netherlands and Germany, holding Europe hostage with corona bonds, which really are a mechanism right now to step in and create some flexibility for the southern European countries who happen to have the bulk of the issues now to deal with. Um, so it has shown a little bit the lack of solidarity in our global system. 
And again, that's another area we're pushing. But I think when we get out of this crisis, uh, I'm not so sure that that balance will be significantly uh, restored. For now, that focus is there perhaps a little bit more than we had before because of the interdependence of the crisis. But once that crisis has been brought under control, like we saw with Ebola, we tend to forget fairly quickly. What's your sense of when we emerge from this, what lessons we're going to learn about the healthcare system that you're hearing discussed in the G7 and the G20 and the ICC. Now, obviously, for the moment, it's about taking care of healthcare workers, making sure they have enough ventilators, respirators, uh, protective equipment. But beyond that, do you see longer term changes in healthcare systems? Understanding that the NHS, which is everyone here is rallying behind, is different from the US healthcare system, is you know, the national healthcare systems are different, but are there any general things that we'll think about in terms of healthcare systems or public health systems that there'll be lessons that we're going to learn from this? We need to, and the script has to be written, and I don't want to pretend to be an expert on the healthcare uh, to answer this completely, but it is very clear that our healthcare systems are broken, uh, and it's from different areas. The um, availability of, of the medical profession itself and the support organizations like the NHS have been hollowed out. Uh, the US has a healthcare system that is only accessible to the upper parts of society and, and not the lower parts of society. Many parts of the emerging markets have very fragile healthcare systems. So I think there is a major relook that undoubtedly will take place in terms of how we provide healthcare and hopefully go to a more a decent level of universal healthcare coming out of this. The second thing we have to look at is the supply of healthcare. It's very concentrated and it's also coming only from a few countries. A few countries providing certain drugs, few countries providing ventilators, etc. And whilst we have started to think a little bit about water and water rights and accessibility of food systems that we don't get exposed uh, on the our medical systems, we have a very fragile supply chain that is also uh, very clear right now. So I think in terms of the supply chain, the providers, the flexibility that we need will certainly be another change. And then at the global level, I think we'll be seeing changes as well. The response to this was relatively slow. Uh, even the WHO and Taiwan already reported the cases. And when news was trickling out of China, uh, for different reasons, we didn't call it a global emergency yet immediately. And that has given us a, a slower response. And then when the response came, it wasn't very well coordinated at global level. So I think our global uh, coordination will also change. So a change at local level and how we provide healthcare, how our infrastructure around our healthcare is uh, being set up, and then how we globally uh, start to coordinate what will undoubtedly be uh, increases of these occurrences. Um, uh, needs to be looked at and some people are starting to work this already. The benefit that we have is uh, increasing access to IT. Soon we can do self-diagnosis on the telephones. There are some apps coming up now mm -hmm. uh, that are quite promising actually. Mm -hmm. uh, but at the same time, we also then need to think about you know, uh, civil liberty and human rights. There are aspects that, that the academic institutions and site, etc. can play a key role in because when we design these solutions. Uh, we also need to design that again with uh, ensuring that we keep uh, citizens' power and that we don't move to more dictatorial governments. Mm -hmm. uh, think about a telephone that can measure your temperature or that can analyze your emotions and think about speeches of heads of state and then matching if your emotions align with the 
the intent of the speeches. And if they don't, you're out of a political system. That's not a society I want to go in, or where everything is face recognition and and you're getting points, and these points allow you to go to the side business school or, or not, right. is, is not something that we want to advocate. So thinking about the medical side has a big component of ethics that also need to be discussed in this. Great. So Paul, um, last question, short question, short answer. What have we learned about leadership? Well, that's a good question. I think the learning is still going on, and that is one of the areas that I think you will be uh, uh, key in, in guiding us and the institutions. But I think, first of all, we're seeing that there is a different form of cooperation. So I think a, a cooperative uh, capitalism form might be there. There's a higher moral level that is being called for. So that's the moral capitalism part. I think we have become a little bit more human and a lot of self-reflection. So that's a human form of capitalism. So I see that you see a, a new stakeholder capitalism emerging. I think this is definitely a defining moment. I've always felt it before the crisis, but this is helping in the sense that we're moving from shareholder primacy to stakeholder primacy. And what we need is now leaders that are more purpose-driven, that can work in these partnerships, that are uh, multi-generational, can handle this complexity, the systemic thinkers, and then get into clear, focused action for the future. And above all, leaders that... Um, are operating with a high sense of morality, authentic, uh, real. Uh, these are the people that I think will have a bright future. And these are the people that we will follow as the leaders of today already and, and of tomorrow. And these are exactly the leaders that the Side Business School is producing. That's why I'm proud of having this incredible student body be part of this movement. What Paul has showcased here is systems thinking, how all the bits of the world fit together. But it's also about understanding how to take action in organizations at a human level. It's about our values, our ability to be kind to one another. The knowledge that stakeholders are human beings, whether they're employees or customers, shareholders or service providers. What the coronavirus pandemic is throwing into sharp relief is that these big, complex systems are intertwined with the lives of the people behind and inside them. My thanks to Paul Pullman. My name is Peter Tofano, and you've been listening to Leadership in Extraordinary Times, a podcast from Oxford University's Side Business School. Listen, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about Leadership in Extraordinary Times, please visit OxfordAnswers.org.